0: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. So thrilled to have on the show this week, Peter Richardson, the author of the new book, Savage Journey, which is about the early years in the career of Hunter S. Thompson, the ultimate gonzo journalist. Oh, who has quite a little interesting history with sports writing as well, which we're going to discuss. I also have some choice words about Brian Flores and his racial discrimination suit against the National Football League and him just getting hired by the Pittsburgh Steelers. Got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards. I got some Kaepernick watch and more. But first, let's talk to Peter Richardson. The book is Savage Journey, Hunter S. Thompson and the Weird Road to Gonzo. And we have the author on the line, Peter Richardson. Peter, how are you doing, sir?
1: Very well. Thanks, Dave. How are you? I'm great.
0: I'm great. I wanted to ask you about why this book, first and foremost. What was it about Hunter S. Thompson that you said we need a book about this stage in his life?
1: Yeah, great question. You know, I think it was partly because, um, you know, he had been a kind of secondary character in the last three books that I've written. One about Kerry McWilliams, who was his editor at The Nation magazine, mm-hmm. which you know a lot about. And uh, he was also sort of mobbed up with the guys at Ramparts magazine, which uh, I wrote a book about um, about 10 years ago. And then he was a big Grateful Dead fan. And so he figured in in these three previous books and every time I went to his uh uh, his correspondence he has two fat books of edited correspondence I was just his voice and just his whole operation just really captivated me and I found it difficult to actually pull myself away from his voice and his writing and get back to the story at hand and so I just thought you know here's a guy who certainly has has been famous for a long time but I didn't really feel like he was well understood especially as a writer so my goal was to take him seriously as a writer. And as you know, you know he starts as a sports writer. And um, so that's something I also wanted to, to make oh, sure yeah. that I, I held up.
0: Oh, we're definitely gonna get into that. Uh, but Hunter S. Thompson, like, like his uh, style of writing, before we get into the sports stuff, which of course is germane to our show, his style of writing, his uh, take no prisoners approach to journalism, What affects? I was I was really trying to think to myself, is he in some ways a way we can explain media in the twenty first century, or is the stuff he's trying to do actually something the media of the twenty first century has gotten too far away from?
1: Oh, great question. Well, you know, I don't think everybody should try to do what he was trying to do. I mean, I think he was a he was a very unique voice and. Uh, you know, a common mistake about him too is to think that he was uh, kind of a wild man. But the but the truth is, he he served a long apprenticeship both as a journalist and as a novelist. And you know, so he had a lot of tools. He had a rich imagination. You know, he had this uh, great feeling for satire and invective. He had a broad range of uh, interests. And so, you know, I'm not sure that that. Um, Anybody would do well to try to follow in his lead necessarily, uh, follow his lead necessarily. But but I do think he brought something to the table that was really important. And when you don't have that, when you don't have that quality, um, you know, things get a little stagnant. And so he was a great media critic as well as, uh, as a strong writer. He was always writing about his topic, but also looking at how, the other media outlets were covering it or not covering it. I mean, in many ways, um, he knew that, that, the, that traditional journalism made it very difficult sometimes to put across truths that the reporters knew very well, but had a hard time communicating in that kind of hard news format. So his willingness to sort of go outside the lines and, and try something new and innovative, I think, uh, was you know it was it it certainly was a great ride for the readers, but I also think it was healthy for the overall media ecology.
0: Because mm. it was it was different. It was a shock of the new, of the times in which he represented. Is is that fair to say that he? Because I guess what I'm asking too is what what about the soil in which this came out of? Because it's hard to imagine it you know burst from his brain like Athena from the head of Zeus.
1: But right, there, right was, yeah.
0: there was some level of influence that took him in a direction that I'm sure a lot of people thought were paths that had never been trod before by journalists.
1: True. Yeah. No, as I say, he served a long apprenticeship. He had a lot of heroes, you know, many of them were novelists. And, you know, this these the parts didn't really come together uh quickly. And and they and his signature style really took a long time to to develop. I mean you know, through the book and throughout the book, I sort of show you how all the pieces came together and, and everything was a sort of step into the unknown. I mean, many of those, many of those steps forward were improvisations and experiments. I I don't think he, he had a kind of conscious project that he was pursuing. He was just kind of putting one, one foot in front of the other and um, and then when it came together, even he wasn't really sure what he had. I mean, that's that's the amazing thing too. Is when you look at his correspondence, you see that some of his biggest breakthroughs he thought were complete failures. Um, so that shows you just how experimental and almost accidental some of his some of his signature works were.
0: Mm. So now, talk to us, so if you could, about. This part of his life that i think most people even people who consider themselves aficionados of some of his great works uh are, are less familiar with and that's his history as a sports writer but also some of his essays that he's written about sports mm-hmm. years can you and of course ending at espn i mean so so you see this through line throughout his his working life Talk yeah absolutely. A bit about this this intersection of Hunter S. Thompson in the world of sports.
1: Well, I mean he loved sports even as a kid. I mean his the very first things that he writes are for a little newspaper that his 12-year-old friend was putting together. It was a sports it was a sports sheet that he was contributing to. And he he loved to play sports but but you know he stopped doing that as a teenager but he never lost his love of sports. And so um he joins the Air Force after high school and he and he serves as a sports writer at an Air Force base in, in Florida, and then he he does some uh, sports editorial work at some nearby newspapers. Uh, you know, so he's also from Louisville, which I think needs to be said. I mean, in some ways, you know, he's, he's not a perfect contemporary, but he's pretty close contemporary of Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, of course, uh, when he was born in Louisville. He was a huge Muhammad Ali fan. He said he had three three heroes um ali was one another was bob dylan and a third was fidel castro so that was his kind of pantheon and and sports really loomed large in his consciousness and his writing so if you look at his big sort of um classic works fear and loathing in las vegas that starts as a sport sports illustrated assignment Mm -hmm. you know he, he of course it's rejected it never runs in sports illustrated but But he goes to Las Vegas thinking he's going to he's going to file a story for Sports Illustrated on a road race in the desert outside of Las Vegas. Another big one, perhaps, you know, the first widely recognized piece of Gonzo journalism, which was his signature style, uh, is focused on the Kentucky Derby, which takes place in his hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and you can go right through it.
0: I have to it. interrupt you right there. I'm so sorry, Peter, because I want to take uh, the listener along for the ride a little bit. How does someone write a gonzo article about the Kentucky Derby? And and, and explain, if you could, that, that phrase gonzo, which is always used as almost like like it's a synonym with Hunter S. Thompson practically. But if you could uh, explain gonzo and then how does that apply to the Kentucky Derby?
1: Right. So so before uh, for most of the 60s, Thompson was considered what was then called a a new journalist, you know, somebody like Tom Wolfe or Joan Didion. And they were sort of importing the techniques of fiction, dialogue, first person narration into their magazine work. So that was, you know, that was part of a larger movement. But Gonzo really does just belong to, to Hunter Thompson. It's not so much a genre, it's just kind of a description of his work, um, after a, a strain of his work after 1970. So Gonzo is really just kind of um, new journalism on steroids, if you will. I mean, it's just a kind of jumped up version of what was already happening in new journalism, where the, where the writer becomes a, a very important part of the story. And for Thompson, I mean, you know, there's really no story without him. I mean, the world kind of reveals its meaning through his warped consciousness in a way. So so Gonzo is a kind of mix of of this kind of hyperbolic political commentary, uh, put downs, invective, satire. It's funny, you know. uh, there's also some hallucinations often. so it's it's there's a lot of media criticism. So it's this very unique blend that is very much you know Thompson's creature and is never really fully maxed out by by any other writer. I mean, he influenced many other people with that style, but it's not the kind of style that you could pick up and just try on and and see how it goes. most Most people who try to imitate it slavishly fail pretty badly i mean another guy who with a lot of interest in sports who also wrote for rolling stone and does a lot of political stuff is matt taibbi and i think matt probably he's not a i wouldn't call him a gonzo journalist but you can see the influence of gonzo especially in his early work but he was wise enough to just kind of let let it influence his work instead of trying to imitate hunter thompson so So it wasn't, as I say, it wasn't part of a conscious project. He didn't sit down one day and say, I'm going to produce some gonzo journalism. Um, It starts when he's paired with uh, this illustrator, Ralph Steadman, to cover the Kentucky Derby in 1970. And of course, they go to Churchill Downs, but they really don't have any interest in the race at all. They just want to observe all the decadence and depravity of that weekend in Louisville, which, of course, is Thompson's hometown. So he just lampoons his own hometown mercilessly and, and hilariously, really. And, um, you know, they, they just go around and look at all the people. He says they came to Louisville to watch the real beasts perform. And by that, he means, you know, the citizens of Louisville. So it has this sort of um, very sharp edge and it's it's quite satirical. There's also a political dimension, a very strong political dimension, because he sets the, the, the Kentucky Derby against a political backdrop that included the bombing of Cambodia, President Nixon's bombing of Cambodia, and uh, the massacre at Kent State University, which happened the same week. So even as he's sort of you know making fun of the Kentucky Derby and of Louisville, he's sort of suggesting that the real craziness, the, the lethal form of craziness, is playing out uh, you know in the in the realm of national and and international politics
0: so uh, muhammad ali in what ways do you feel like ali uh why did he have such a strong appeal to hunter s thompson other than the common louisville background and can you talk a little bit about how hunter s thompson tried to capture ali in his writings
1: yeah he just i mean ali obviously his his courage not just as a boxer but as a but as a a citizen and as a as a black muslim and you know what he was willing to risk i think um a lot of people admired muhammad ali for that but but for thompson i think there was a kind of special appeal because for his whole life he sort of saw himself as a as a kind of uh Uh, you know, kind of a rugged individualist kind of posted up, up, up in the Rocky mountains, he didn't see himself as a, as a joiner or part of some larger effort. And I think his willingness, Ali's willingness to kind of stand up to authority that way during the Vietnam, which, which Thompson strongly opposed. So, so he was already sympathetic to those who were, who were protesting the war. But for somebody with so much to lose, it would have been so easy for Muhammad Ali to go ahead and let himself be drafted and get some kind of light assignment and um, go back to boxing. I mean, I'm sure they would have allowed him to box uh, in the military as well. He would have been a hero. But um, he became a different kind of hero, I think, by refusing to, to be drafted. And of course, there was the whole legal case that worked its way through the through the court system. I mean, it's just, you know, he, this is at the height of, of Ali's powers, too. So he had a lot to lose. I, I would say if I had to pick one virtue, it was really Ali's courage. Of course, he was a very playful, humorous, charismatic guy, too. And, and uh, Thompson also was very charismatic and humorous. So And, of course, they were both from Louisville. <laughs> I think that... Above all, maybe, they they had that thing in common. They both grew up in Jim Crow, Louisville. Uh, They had very different experiences with it. But um, as you know from the book, I mean, when when Thompson's growing up as a kid, when he's nine years old or so, the the local baseball team, the Kentucky Colonels, uh, leave the field. This is the baseball team. Leave the field when um, the Dodgers minor league team comes on because there's a black player on the field. And that's Jackie Robinson. So that that's the that's the world that both Ali and Thompson were growing up in. And uh, of course, you know, Ali goes on to become a kind of global figure uh, on behalf of racial justice. I I don't think I can give that to Thompson. Uh, They they obviously took very different things away from their uh, from their Louisville experience. But But it's pretty easy to see why Thompson or anyone else would would admire Ali in the highest possible terms.
0: And it's so current for the time we're doing this interview, uh, a mere six days, although honestly it feels like six months after the Super Bowl. uh, Mm. Hunter S. Thompson had a lot to say about the Super Bowl. Yeah, I
1: mean, of course, he loved football and he... uh, Followed
0: right. through his whole Is It's been six days or thirteen days since the Super Bowl.
1: <laughs> it feels
0: like thirteen. I'm not sure. I have no idea. Just keep, keep, Let's let's just keep rolling. We're keeping there. The
1: the, uh, the Winter Olympics were in there too somewhere. Ugh. But yeah, um, Thompson loved football. I mean, he really did. Of course, he 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 saw it for what it was too, and that was, um, you know, a big business. And what what he really wanted to do after the Kentucky Derby piece was you know turn that into a franchise he, he didn't just want to stop with the Kentucky Derby he wanted to go to the Super Bowl he wanted to go to America's Cup he wanted to go to the masters golf tournament he wanted to go to Mardi Gras and he wanted to go with ralph steadman and 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 sort of do this whole satirical thing um at all of these kind of high profile events. many of them were sporting events and 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 of course as I said earlier, you know his his um Las Vegas book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas also starts with a, there's a kind of sporting event at the heart of that too. So that, that is, you know, he was a freelancer for his whole life. So he's always trying to figure out where the next check was coming from. And he realized it took him a little while, interestingly, it took him a little while to realize that this Gonzo approach was really his most valuable literary asset. But as soon as he did, he, he tried to figure out a way to, to turn it into, um, you know, turn it into a steady paycheck and a kind of branded franchise. The problem with that is the, the magazine where he, where he published uh, the Kentucky Derby piece quickly went out of business. They only published eight issues. So he had to figure out another place to, to do this, you know, to play out this idea. And that place turned out to be Rolling Stone magazine, which was not a sports magazine at all. Um, it was, in fact, a rock magazine, but it was always more than that. And uh, its found co-founder and and editor Jan Wenner decided that that Hunter Thompson might click with his readers, even though Thompson was a little bit older. You know, he was an Air Force veteran. He wanted to write about sports. That's not what that's not what R- Rolling Stone magazine was about. But there was there was something about what Thompson was doing that really appealed to, to the readers of Rolling Stone magazine.
0: Mm. And lastly, I mean, if we're talking about Hunter S. Thompson in sports, we have to talk about uh, his last work for ESPN. What do you think brought him to that as a venue? I mean, at that point in his career, he could have probably set up shop anywhere. Right. But Clearly there was something that, that kept drawing him back.
1: Yeah, I mean, he sort of gave up going to political news sites in the, in the 1980s. I mean, he, he sort of made his mark by covering the 1972 presidential campaign and turning that into a book. And then in the 1980s, he um, was doing books mostly, not doing as, as much magazine work. He did have a column for a while at the San Francisco Examiner. That was a media column. And um, so by the time John Walsh, who was his editor at Rolling Stone magazine, um, who had gone over to ESPN, by the time John Walsh and he decided that, you know, he could write for ESPN, um, you know, uh, his, his writing had lost a lot of its vitality and vigor. Um, he was still publishing books and, and reaching wide audiences, but it didn't have that kind of trademark zip or PEP. And, uh, and Walsh was working with him very carefully because as you say, I mean, uh, Thompson was still a kind of superstar, but it was hard to get those ESPN columns out of him. The exception, of course, is the, is the day that he writes a column on September 12th, 2001. And, you know, as always, he was, he was often writing about sports for ESPN, but he had a way of working his political views into it too. And he said, "You know, I, I can't. I can't really write about sports today. I need to talk about what happened yesterday in New York City." And if you go back and look at that piece, I mean, it is his last great piece. It is so on point and so prophetic. There were things that he said in that piece, and it just kind of shows you how kaleidoscopic the media landscape had become, how fragmented in some ways by then. Because here's this guy writing for an online uh sports site espn and yet he's the guy who who probably nails what was actually going on with 9-11 and what what it portended uh, more quickly and more accurately than a lot of other very seasoned journalists whose beat was international politics
0: Mm, i love that i really do well (laughs) The book, and I'm so glad you did this work, Peter, the book is Savage Journey, Hunter S. Thompson, The Weird Road to Gonzo. One one last question. We always ask this to folks who come on the program, and that's to speak about the kind of music that they listened to as they were putting the book together. I assume Hunter S. Thompson is very evocative of some tunes in your mind. You mentioned the Grateful Dead earlier. What kind of music was either you were either playing while you were writing or was going through your mind or you listened to as you were wrapping up a day at the at the old word processor like what what, what is the kind of music that animated <laughs> this for you
1: yeah i'd have to kind of think about that i mean I, a lot of times i listen to uh, americana which someone once described as country music that doesn't sell and uh, you know, it's I know that uh, Thompson liked that too. He sort of came out of the folk. He had some jazz heroes. He was really down with uh, the music and the San Francisco counterculture. Though he loved um, Jefferson Airplane and, as you mentioned, the Grateful Dead. I really loved um, Working Man's Dead, the the first big uh, Grateful Dead album that came out in nineteen seventy. And he put together he put together a list of his favorite albums of of the 1960s. Though he didn't often write about music, he was a huge Bob Dylan fan. And you know, I like a lot of other people. I I listen to Bob Dylan still. And um, he really liked Tambourine Man. That was something that he played at full volume. When he was writing, I actually don't have that ability. I kind of have to focus on (laughs) what I'm looking at in the moment. But uh, I would say those are some of the things that come to mind uh, on that question. Sometimes I need to get a little bit more revved up, and uh, I I move on to some something a little bit more challenging. But those those are the things that come immediately to mind.
0: Nice, and I love the way Peter, the way all your books seem to fit into one puzzle. Do you know what your next book is going to be?
1: I have an idea for one. You know, I'm still kind of working it out. It's related to this ch- tangent that I've been on with the things that are sort of rooted somehow in the in the San Francisco counterculture, which has turned into kind of a cartoon, I think, or a stereotype. and I, I think there's people like the dead or or Hunter Thompson who whose literary formation really happened in San Francisco during that time. There's something about that 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 tends to sort of get written off very quickly and stereotypically. So I might do one more along those lines. I have some other ideas, but a lot of it, as you probably know, comes from my teaching. I teach at San Francisco State and focus on Cal- California culture. So it usually has something to do with what's happening out here. And um, if I had to if I had to make a bet, that's probably <laughs> that's probably where I put my money next
0: time. <laughs> Well, Peter Richardson, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Dave.
0: Terrific. We'll be back right after this after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. This is what you got to read. It's the nation magazine. Go to the nation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support the nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe, go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the edge of sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about brian flores and the latest with the national football league okay look brian flores is once again coaching in the nfl yes it's in a position he is overqualified for defensive assistant in charge of linebackers yes it is for a coach the pittsburgh steelers mike tomlin that several weeks ago stood alone as the only blackhead coach in the nfl Yes, it is for an organization owned by the Rooney family, which for 20 years has put forward the aspiration for racial equity in the coaching ranks, but it's still a job. And even with the special circumstances surrounding the outlier history of the Steelers franchise, it's a surprise twist in this story. Flores, of course, is suing the NFL for racial discrimination, an understandable reaction to finding himself outside the head coaching fraternity following his unexpected firing after two consecutive winning seasons with the Miami Dolphins. Most believe that when Flores issued this lawsuit, he was signing away any opportunity to coach again in the NFL. Flores, who's only 40 years old, certainly believed that this was a possibility. Speaking to ESPN last month, he said, We didn't have to file a lawsuit for the world to know there's an issue. We need change. That was the number one reason. I know there's sacrifice, there's risk to that, but at the end of the day, we need change. To Flores' credit, the lawsuit is not going anywhere. His attorney confirmed as such in a statement saying, while Coach Flores is now focused on his new position, he will continue with his class action suit so that real change can be made in the NFL. If anything, Being hired for a job for which he is brazenly overqualified and underpaid speaks to why it is so important that he press on, have his day in court, confront the NFL, and achieve discovery so he can hold before the law and the public just how prejudicial the 32 NFL chief executives have been in their hiring practices. Yet I don't think either the Rooney family or Roger Goodell's NFL thought that this hiring would deter Flores from pursuing his case— or they are about as naive as people who thought that Aaron Rodgers would galvanize the players around him and lead the Packers to the Super Bowl. The Flores hiring is first and foremost about the Steelers getting stronger. They now have the equivalent of Barry Bonds teaching batting practice. As Tomlin said in a statement, Brian's resume speaks for itself. As for Flores, if he was looking to jump on somewhere as an assistant rather than sit home this season, It is damning that the other 31 teams were not lined up outside his door but make no mistake this is also about optics this is about optics as much as the nfl's announcement that former u.s attorney general loretta lynch and what is surely going to be a multicultural dream team would be leading its defense against flores's charges this is about optics as much as the league painting and racism in the end zones this is about optics as much as turning over the Super Bowl halftime show to Jay-Z and Dr. Dre. This is about the NFL, like some kind of lumbering cyborg developing sentience, understanding that its response to Colin Kaepernick's rebellion against racist police violence could not be replicated. It's been six years and the white balling of Kaepernick and turning him into a pariah still rankles some fans and media members and it particularly upsets many of the players. After the police murder of George Floyd in 2020, a group of stars led by the league's number one attraction, Patrick Mahomes, chastised the NFL for its response to player protests. Goodell was forced to give a mea culpa and said the league should have done better. No one knows, and given how skittish the league must be these days about putting anything down on paper or in an email, no one will probably ever know if pressure was exerted on the Steelers to hire Flores. But the NFL clearly will only be too happy to marginalize Flores' voice, keep him off the talk show circuit, and focused on the Steelers' defense. Yet this provides only a short-term PR solution that won't mean a damn once Flores gets his day in court. It's time to air out the racism in the NFL, and Flores appears undeterred in his efforts to throw the doors wide open. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to the women of the United States women's soccer team. The national team has gotten a $24 million settlement in their class action lawsuit against USA soccer, calling for, I should say, U.S. soccer, calling for equal pay. You might remember the chance of equal pay even made it to the World Cup uh, as the U.S. women dominated en route to yet another international crown. Let's remember that the U.S. women are the ones who become icons like Megan Rapino and Alex Morgan. They are the ones who get high ratings. You know, the ratings of the Women's World Cup, it rivals anything short of the Super Bowl. And they are the ones who, frankly should be getting paid not just the same as the men but maybe even more you know it's that as someone famous once said you know women who strive for equality are not reaching high enough that's who these women are they have reached higher than even the pretense of equality they are the superior team and getting this settlement is absolutely huge so kudos to them the just sit your ass down award Sit your ass down! Goes to people who are uncritically cheering this settlement, however. Because as Hope Solo, the former goalkeeper for the U.S. women's national team, as she pointed out, all of the money, the $24 million, the back pay, the special fund that's going to girls' soccer programs across the country, all of that is predicated on U.S. soccer signing a collective bargaining agreement With the U.S. women. Now, will that agreement be signed anytime soon? I mean, one thing's for sure. The head of U.S. soccer is saying that she expects them to sign an agreement by the end of March. Let's see if that happens. Because one worries about the possibility of what we would call the old switcheroo of U.S. soccer getting the good headlines and then not putting their money where their mouth was. Let's find out. Now's the time for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch. We actually got some news this week. Very exciting, uh, very important, I should say. Colin Kaepernick and his Know Your Rights Camp group is putting forward an initiative so people who are killed by the police can get their own autopsies done. Usually the autopsy, of course, is done by the police department and the coroner's office. And also the idea of getting your own autopsy done is so beyond the financial means of people, particularly the people who are profoundly and disproportionately killed by police. So much credit to Colin Kaepernick for actually pushing forward with an initiative that's going to piss off all the right people, no doubt, but is also designed to actually aid the families affected most severely and most tragically by police violence. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much, Peter Richardson. The book is called Savage Journey about Hunter S. Thompson. Oh my goodness, you got to read it. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. For everybody out there, please mask up. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.